0: Well, as has been mentioned a couple times now, uh, this is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of something that uh, we often refer to as Holy Week. And uh, it encompasses everything that that happens uh, from today, Palm Sunday, through to Easter Sunday. So Palm Sunday, uh, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, those are the the kind of the, the big markers there. And collectively, these special days are intended to focus our intention uh, our attention on the last week of Jesus' life, uh, so that we can think a little deeply, meditate on the significance of His death and resurrection on our behalf. Uh, frequently, it's not <coughs> written in stone, but it, it's uh, sort of a loose tradition. Usually on uh, Palm Sunday, we talk about something in the sort of the early part of of that week, the the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, as he was making his way towards the cross. Last year, uh, we looked at the triumphal entry. That's the story where Jesus rides up to the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, even the foal of a donkey. The week before that, we looked at Psalm 118, where we get the song that everybody sings on Good Friday, Hosanna. And we talked about that. We've also, I went back through my records there, we've also looked at the story of Jesus anointing at Bethany, Uh, We've looked at the story of his cleansing of the temple, and we've recently looked as well at the parable of the wedding banquet. But to the best of my recollection, we have never spoken about the parable of the two sons as told by Matthew and only by Matthew in Matthew 21, 28 to 32. So if you have a Bible with you and you're able to open it up, why don't you do that and find that passage, Matthew 21, 28 to 32. That's on page 826. In UQ Bible. While you find that, let me give you the basic timeline leading up to this story. So, on Sunday, the Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. We just spoke about that a moment ago. He rides in, he does a little walk through the temple, sort of walks around, sees what's happening, and then he rides out. And he goes back to Bethany, where he was staying. The next morning on Monday, he goes back into the city, walking this time. And as he does, he passes by a fig tree and he curses it. You remember that? Because it was not bearing any fruit. Then he went into the temple, and he drove out the money changers, because they were filling up with all their booths and activities, the space in the temple that had actually been designated for Gentiles to pray. So he drove them out. And then as he was leaving, his disciples noticed that the fig tree had already withered and died, symbolizing the fact that God has cursed and rejected the temple system. Just like the fig tree, it wasn't doing what God had created it to do. In fact, it was doing the opposite of what God had created it to do. It was now functioning as a barrier to people who wanted to draw near to the Lord. And so it was rejected and replaced. That's the symbolic action. Rejected and replaced by the person of Jesus Christ himself. Then on Tuesday and Wednesday of that week, he spent time uh, refuting the counterattacks of the religious leaders who obviously were not super excited about all the implications of the things that Jesus was saying and doing. In Matthew 21, 23 to 27, so that's just before the passage we're looking at, the authorities came to Jesus and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? I mean, you're making some bold claims, right? I mean, this would be the equivalent of somebody walking into the church kind of looking around and saying, all of this is garbage, we're going to get rid of it. I've I've called the bulldozers, we'll bulldoze this down, and I will come up with a whole new religious system. And you'd be like, there's some elders here at our church you need to speak to before you make those kind of plans. Uh, Like, what are you talking about? And who, basically, who do you think that you are? And then in response to those questions, Jesus begins to tell a series of parables. And we'll read the first one of those in our reading this morning. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as always, the answers that Jesus gives are a little bit more impressive when you begin by remembering the questions that he was asked. The religious leaders asked him, who do you think you are to make these kind of changes? And Jesus answers basically by saying, who do you think you are to ask me any questions about the kingdom of God? The tax collectors and the prostitutes know more about that subject than you do. Be careful about asking Jesus questions. That is unofficial point number one. Uh, If you ask questions in a humble spirit, you probably get an answer. But if you ask your questions in an arrogant or defiant spirit, you probably get a rebuke. And that's what this parable is. It is simultaneously a, a rebuke and an invitation. How it functions in your life depends upon the posture of your heart as you receive it. So let's go through it. What is Jesus saying in this parable? I think the first thing he's clearly saying is this. We are not saved by being good people. Jesus is having this conversation with people who thought they were good people. Look up in your Bible just a couple of verses there to verse 23. It says, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So the chief priests and the elders... That's who he's having this conversation with, the good people, right? The big shots, the noble, the rich, the powerful, the respected. But listen to who he compares them to at the end of the story. He says, truly, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. D.A. Carson says here, the shock value of Jesus' statement can only be appreciated when the low esteem in which tax collectors or held, not to mention prostitutes, is taken into account. But Jesus is saying that the scum of society, though it says no to God, repents, performs the Father's will, and enters the kingdom. Whereas the religious authorities loudly say yes to God, but never do what he says. And therefore, they fail to enter. Their righteousness is not enough. Exactly that. We so often think that it's about being righteous, and to figure out if we are righteous, we compare ourselves to other people. But that's like two ants comparing themselves to each other. Either way, no matter how big you are, you're still an ant. And the tallest ant is not a horse, nor is it a human being. That's the point being made here. All human beings are fallen. We all fall short of the glory of God, just like ants fall short of the glory of a horse or of the glory of a human. And so the question is, how do we get back to who we were supposed to be, to where we were supposed to be? How do we bridge this gap? You can't just stand up a little straighter, because even the straightest and the most upright are not upright enough. Jesus said that back in Matthew 5. He said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus points at the biggest ants in the sandbox, or the people who thought they were the biggest ants in the sandbox, and he says, that's not big enough. They are nowhere near big enough. If you think that getting into heaven is a matter of simply standing a little taller than the person next to you, then you're not even in the conversation. That is a road that leads to nowhere. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. You are not even in the kingdom conversation because you think you can morally improve your way into salvation. He says, that's a fool's errand. We're not saved by being or attempting to become good people. And then secondly, neither are we saved by saying all the right things. The bones of the story, of course, have to do with two sons. We've got an older son, the first son, and we've got a younger son. He goes to the older son, the father does, And he asks the older son to go out into the field. And he says at first, no. So he doesn't respond correctly at first. But then later he changes his mind and he does go and do what the father has asked. So he's the one in the story who gets it. And then the second son, the younger son, he's the one who pays lip service to dad. He says, oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. Right away, sir. But then he actually doesn't do anything. He just goes down to the basement and plays video games for the rest of the day or whatever the first century equivalent of video games was. He talks a good game, but he doesn't do anything. He thinks that pleasing the father is merely a matter of saying the right thing. But of course, the father's not an idiot. He can see whether his son is actually out in the field doing what he asked him to do, or whether he's at home doing whatever it is that he wants to do. The younger son is only fooling himself. I'll tell you this, though. There are a lot of younger sons in the evangelical world in North America today. There are a ton of people who think that because they said the sinner's prayer, because they said said the magic words back when they were 10 years old, that they have somehow fooled God as if you could do that, right? There is literally a parable in the Bible reminding you that you can't do that. Of course God heard what you said. But then he watched to see if you did what you said. And so the issue isn't what words did you use when you were 10 years old. The issue is how are you living now as a 30-year-old? Are you in the field? Are you doing what the Father told you to do or not? If you said the sinner's prayer as a 10-year-old, but you aren't following Jesus today as a grown-up, then let me state the obvious. According to this parable, you are not, nor were you ever saved. Right? Am I, am, I, am I reading this wrong? The parable seems to be saying that words are just words if they are not accompanied by movement. And Jesus said this kind of stuff all the time, not just here. Luke six forty-six. he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you. Words are only meaningful when they reflect a lived reality. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were talking a good game. They were singing the loudest at church by far. They were the folks who prayed in the King James Version, you know. Uh, they, they, they knew all the religious words. They were always talking about the glory, reflecting upon the holiness ruminating upon, regaling upon the glories of God's righteousness. They knew how to talk. They knew how to sound like righteous people. But at the end of the day, they were nowhere. They didn't respond to John the Baptist's call, and they weren't responding to Jesus' call. So they were, in reality, just a bunch of pretty little parrots singing a song on the precipice of hell. Far better, Jesus says, far better to be a prostitute who actually repents and begins walking in the way of salvation. that's where the parable ends. Jesus is saying that people are actually saved by turning around and beginning to walk in the ways that lead to eternal life. That's why he mentions John the Baptist. look at verse 32. He says, "For John came to you in the way of righteousness. So John was a bit of a trailblazer there and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. And believe him. And believe him. We sort of expect Jesus to say, You did not change your mind and believe me. But he doesn't. He says, Believe him. Because John the Baptist's job was to open the door, right? His job was to kind of wave his arms at the gate that leads to the way of life. John's message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the first step on the road that leads to heaven. You have to stop, you have to turn around, you have to repent. That word might be the most important word in all of Christendom. I get nervous sometimes, I will tell you this, I get nervous sometimes when I hear gospel presentations that don't include the word repent. I don't know if if that sets your spidey senses tingling. By the way, if you're under 40, of course, you have no idea what spidey senses are. Oh, I guess you do, because don't they remake that movie every 40 minutes? Anyway. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, But... Whenever I hear people whose gospel is basically, you know, God loves you, he's wonderful, and uh, he wants to forgive you, and he's got great plans for your life, all of which is true, but if it doesn't include the word repent, or at least, you don't have to use that word repent, but if it doesn't include the notion of repentance, doesn't that make you nervous? I think it should make you nervous, because according to the Bible, that is step one. That's actually the gate, which, and of course, Pilgrim's Progress reminds us, if you read that as a kid, if you are on a road that didn't start at the gate, then whatever road you're on is not the road that leads to eternal life, right? The right road begins on the other side of the right gate. Pilgrim, member, a Christian meets somebody one time, and uh, they hop a hedge to get onto his road, and they've been dr- going on some other road, and he says, oh, oh, I see. Well, I'm curious about that. He says, did, did you begin the journey by passing through the the wicked gate? Not wicked as in wicked, but wicked as in small. And he says, no, 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 no. No, I didn't. Uh, there was no gate like that at the beginning. And Christian's like, oh, okay, well, then you might not be on the road that leads to salvation. Salvation begins with, Repentance. As I say, I think that might be the most important word in the Christian vocabulary. It's the Greek word metanoia. It means, listen, to undergo a change in frame of mind and feeling, to make a change of principle and practice, to reform. So it's like Saul on the, on the road to Damascus. Remember that? We, we talked about that a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 9. Saul is heading toward Damascus, he's got letters. From the Jewish Senate to uh, take into custody anybody who was following Jesus and to bring them back for church punishment. He's a man on a mission. Then all of a sudden, a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And of course, after that, Saul is never the same again. He was going up to Damascus as a persecutor of the church. He came back from Damascus as a preacher of the gospel. One of the reasons that story is in your Bible is to give you a picture of repentance. Repentance involves a change in your heart that results in a change of direction in your life. John the Baptist called on people to make that kind of fundamental change, to fundamentally change and reorient the direction of their life. He said loud and clear, you need to stop. You're on the wrong road. This system that we are in does not lead to salvation. It is corrupt. It's a road that doesn't involve repentance. It's actually a road about respectability. Get off this road. This road goes nowhere. This is an escalator. At the top of it, you just fall off into a pit. It's not going anywhere. And then he looked at Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, He pointed at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way to abundant and everlasting life. You need to get off whatever road you're on now, and you need to start following him. That was John's advice, and that was Jesus' rebuke to the religious leaders. They didn't listen to John, and they didn't listen to him. Now, obviously, this encounter that we're reading about happened an awful long time ago, and those people were very, very different from us, you know. They were sure that they had it right. They were sure that they were on the way of righteousness. They were in the majority, of course. Jesus and John were voices crying out in the wilderness. But actually, when you put it that way, then maybe they weren't so different from us after all. After all, most Canadians today are absolutely sure that they're on the right side of things. Don't they often remind us that? That they're on the right side of things. They're on the right side of history. Most Canadians today think of themselves as good people. In fact, judging ourselves to be good people, particularly in relation to our cousins south of the border, is kind of our national pastime, isn't it? We are the Pharisees, and, and they are the tax collectors and prostitutes. But like Jesus is saying here, relative goodness is of interest only to fools. Are you better than them? Maybe. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. What matters is whether you are on the path that leads to eternal life. Because I've got news for you, friend. You will spend eternity somewhere. Do you understand that? You are a creature of incredible worth and dignity. You were created in the image and likeness of God. You are no mere animal. And one day, you will die, and you will stand before God at the end of history in the flesh, and you will give an account for your life. And from that appointment, you will go somewhere, and you will exist somewhere for all eternity. And so it's really, really, really important whether or not you are on the path that leads to eternal life. So, how do we respond to this maximally important parable? I think the answer is the same way Jesus and before him John the Baptist wanted the religious leaders of his day to respond as well. He wanted them, first of all, to stop. Most of us are so sure that we're doing it right, that we're on the right side of things. Even though in our situation as Canadians, we've only been walking on this path for about ten minutes, right? Right? historically speaking. In that sense, we are far more arrogant than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. At least they could say that they had been following this path, crooked as it may be, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But we can't say that as modern-day Canadians. Most of what we think of as righteous in this country would have been considered wicked and abominable just two generations ago. You know that, right? I mean, think about it this way. Imagine you could go back in time to, to the 1930s when my grandparents were teenagers. Imagine you could, you could sit down with my grandparents and you could try to explain to them contemporary moral standards in Canada. What do you think they would do? I'm, I'm guessing my grandfather would pull out a shotgun and run you off the porch, And they weren't even Christians then. They were just Canadians. But no Canadians believed then what Canadians believe today. So how in the world, how in the world can you be so certain that you're doing it right? That you are really and truly walking in the path of righteousness? That you're on the right side of history? What if everything you believe is just a contemporary fad? The fashion of the moment. What if what passes for consensus in this country is actually just the madness of crowds? Can you at least stop for a second and think about that? Because that's where it all begins. It all begins with you questioning your certainties and doubting your doubts. Maybe what you think is true isn't true. Maybe what you've been told all your life to doubt is actually quite reasonable. I mean, is it really that unlikely to think that there might be a creator behind all the goodness and beauty and glory we see in creation? Is that so unlikely? Is it so unlikely to think that 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 creator might at some point want to communicate with the crown of his creation with human beings? Is it so fantastic to think that at some point in the story, he might actually have condescended to enter into the story, the author becoming a character, as it were, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves? Is all of that really as unlikely as you've been led to believe? You should stop and think about that because every salvation story begins at precisely that point that's what Jesus meant when he talked about being poor in spirit. You have to know that maybe you don't know. And you have to be willing to see what you were once sure wasn't there. And that's the second step. You have to stop, and then you have to see. John's ministry took place at the transition between those two steps. His job was to tell people to stop and look at Jesus, right? He was like a traffic cop. He was this guy, stop and look. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what you need to do. You need to look at Jesus on the cross and think about what you see. You know, we have, we, Pastor Steve and I talked about Good, Good Friday coming up, and we talked about how you should prepare your heart. It's communion. Communion is, is like a mini Good Friday. We have Good Friday once a, uh, a year, but we have communion once a month, don't we? Every communion service is Good Friday, basically. The, it's, it's an interesting kind of service. If you're sort of new to the church and you're trying to figure out the rhythms, you probably noticed on, on most Sundays, you're out of here by 1120. And then all of a sudden, once a month, we have communion, and it's like 1135. And you're wondering, what is the deal here? Is it just like once a month, these folks get hungry and need a snack before they make the long journey home? Like, what is this all about? Well, communion is actually designed so that once a month we actually stop, we actually slow down, and we think about Jesus. And we try to answer the question, what do we really believe is going on there? What do you believe is going on there? You should figure that out before you come back on Friday. Why do you think Jesus is hanging on that cross? Is is he up on the cross because of sins that he committed? No, that can't be it. Jesus one time asked a question that no other human being would ever dare to ask. He said, and this is John 8, 46. He said, which one of you convicts me of sin? I would never dream of asking that question. My mom goes to this church. If I ever asked that question from the pulpit, she'd be running down that aisle so hard with her prepared list of 58 stories she could tell that would curl your hair, right? It would actually be a race between her and my wife, right? Right? So no chance uh, that I will ever be asking that question, but Jesus asked that question. Nobody said a word. So he's, he's not up there because of his sin. So whose sin is he up there for? You need to think about that. And here's another good question. Why do sins have to be paid for anyway? Why couldn't God? I mean, sometimes... Like a parent, sometimes don't you just say, well, you know, whatever, kids are kids, they're going to do stupid stuff, I don't want to deal with it, you know, we'll just pretend it never happened. Why couldn't God just wave his hand and wipe away sin like it never happened? Right? Why couldn't he all just give, it, give us all a pass? The cross is challenging you to think about that because there's a dead human being up on that cross, And not just any human being. It's Jesus Christ up on that cross, the greatest human being ever. And not just the greatest human being ever, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, infinite worth, infinite holiness. What in the world is he doing up there? Begs the question, doesn't it? Doesn't it raise the question, how much does God really care about sin? Maybe it's more significant than you think. And how much does God care about us? Maybe you're more significant than you think. That's the things you're supposed to be thinking about as you look at Christ on the cross. The Apostle Paul spent lots of time thinking about that. And he came up with maybe the most insightful answer ever given. He looked at Jesus there and he said this, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's where Paul landed. He looked at the cross. He thought about all the things you're supposed to be thinking about. He thought long and hard, and that's the answer he came to. He says, I got it. I know what's going on there. That is God being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just, meaning fair. That's God being fair. Meaning he... He thought of a fair price that would square the account of sinners. And the only thing that could do that was the precious blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus could make a payment that more than equaled the debt that we owed. So that was him being just. Have you ever thought about that? By the way, you know that verse we all love to quote? I think you'll love to quote it even more if you know what it means. You know the verse, if we confess our sins, how does that go? If we confess our sins, he is what now? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about that? Faithful and just meaning that if you put faith in Jesus Christ, if you, through confession and repentance, put your sins on Jesus as he bears the wrath of God against sin and those sins are paid for, it would henceforth be unjust for God to hold you accountable for those sins. Have you ever thought about that? We almost always think of forgiveness in terms of mercy, and it is. Have you ever thought of forgiveness in terms of justice? God is just, and it would be wicked and wrong for him to punish you for your sins after having already punished Jesus for those sins. Have you ever thought of that? Forgiveness is a matter of justice. That's where Paul's mind went, the Apostle Paul. He looked up there and he said, that's God being just. He wasn't willing to just say, okay, guys, I love you so much. Let's pretend that never happened. Okay, guys, you know what? Sin, let's not even talk about it. It doesn't even matter. No, it does matter. He says, I want you to understand how much it matters, so I'm actually going to be just. I'm going to pay a fair price for that. Now, of course, you can't pay that. So I'll pay that. It was God being just and also merciful. He was offering us a way to go home. He was saying, if you come home this way, through the blood, through the person and work of Christ, then you'll be accepted, you will be forgiven. You will be restored. The blood covers all. So you got to stop. You have to see that. And then you have to surrender. That's the third thing. To surrender means to swear allegiance to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There is no salvation without that. To come back is to come under. That's the deal. You kneel at the cross, you confess your sin, you swear allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you rise and follow Him. That's the way home. That's the path of salvation. The tax collectors and the prostitutes saw that. They saw that door, and they went through it in droves, right? They understood the incredible deal that they were being offered. A fresh start. By the way, maybe you need to know how much of a sinner you are. Maybe this is why Jesus, you know, sometimes says how hard it is for the rich and respectable, right? Because actually you need to know what a good deal this is. And if you think you're already the most righteous ant in the sandbox, then maybe this never even occurs to you. Maybe you don't value a fresh start. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands right now, but let me ask you, let me just ask you, you can raise your hand in your heart. Anybody in here could use a fresh start today? Anybody in here could use a clean slate today? Because this applies to the worst of sinners, right? Jesus is saying, this is the tax collectors and the prostitutes knew a good deal when they heard it. This is like a one time amnesty. Like no matter what you have done in the past, you walk through the veil of blood and it all disappears. How about that? A fresh start, clean slate and a chance to finally follow somebody who actually knows where they're going. Does that sound good to you today? Then come. This is the path. Walk ye in it. And all the Christian sacraments are designed to help you find this path, walk this path, follow this path all the days of your life. Now, don't be afraid of the word sacrament. Just because people use it in a confusing way doesn't mean it's not a good word. The word sacrament is actually borrowed from the Roman military. It was the oath of allegiance that soldiers swore to their commanding officer. So it's a good word. Because what we're saying now is that you are swearing allegiance to Jesus as your commanding officer. We do that once a month through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's the monthly pledge of allegiance. The initial pledge of allegiance happens in the baptism tank. When you go under the water, you are saying, I am dying to myself. I am no longer the captain of my own ship. By the way, if I were going to make a list of the worst sentences to ever give to speak in your baptism testimony, that would be at the top of the list, right? We love that. What's it from? Invictus or whatever. It's that poem, and it became famous. I'm the captain of my own. That is literally the opposite of what you were saying in the the waters of baptism. You were saying, I should not be the captain of anything. I shouldn't be the captain of a dinghy. I don't know where I'm going, and I'm spinning like this. So I'm hooking my rope to ship Jesus. That's what you're saying. He is my Lord and Savior now. He is my captain. That's what you say. I'm dying to self, and I am rising to the Lordship of Jesus. That's the initial pledge. That's the first step. Now, What's the parable we just read saying? The parable we just read says, now listen, you need to get off to more than a good start. Can I tell you a little secret? I have baptized a handful of people in that tank who are no longer walking with Jesus. I baptized somebody on a Sunday who never came back. Now you say, wait a second. Does that, well, maybe then we shouldn't be doing baptism. No, 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 listen. Listen. The story isn't saying that getting off to a good start doesn't matter. The story is just saying that getting off to a good start is just a good start. Pledge of allegiance initially in the tank matters. You got to join the Lord's army, right? But then you got to show up the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Paul says, I die daily. Now, we don't baptize you every day and take a lot of water, right? But you do die daily to follow Jesus. But a good start really does matter. We have a baptism service next Sunday, and there is still plenty of room in the tank. So if you've come to the point of faith today, then I invite you to make that miracle known. I'm going to ask right now, we just bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment as we close our service together. Pastor Matt and I are going to keep our eyes open. But we're going to be the only ones. Everybody else is going to close their eyes. And I'm just going to ask right now, if you've come to the point of faith and if if you would like to get baptized, if you're ready right now to make an initial pledge of allegiance to Jesus to begin following him, if you're ready, then I would just ask you to raise your hand and Pastor Matt and I will talk to you after the service. You come talk to us as well. there's anybody here that would just like to join in on that, we've got space left. We'll speak to you after the service. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter whether you're a member of the social elite or a drug dealer or a prostitute. i got news for you. We've baptized a couple of those folks too. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what you've done or where you're coming from because all of that is going to be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So come. Come unto Jesus and be saved. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood. We thank you that there is a fountain that washes whiter than snow. Lord, every true believer in this room knows how much they need that. And every true believer in this room knows how lost they would be if they weren't holding on to the back of your robe and following in your footsteps. We want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the road we want to walk. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.